Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 12, 1 through 2, 9 through 16, and John 13, 14 through 35. It'll be in your pew Bibles on page 90, uh, 947 and 48, and then 900. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is God's will, the, that it, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Moving to verse 9. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another, showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Moving now to John 13, verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this, therefore, or before it takes place, that when it does not take place, uh, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked to one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus, so Simon Peter motioned, mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he, whom, he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So he had dipped the morsel of bread and gave it to Judas, son of Simeon the Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him and Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do it quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that Judas had the money bag and Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he would give him something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify himself at once. Little children, yet as uh, a little while I am with you, 
You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews and now also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all the people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. Giving honor to God the Father, our all in all, and to the Son, our Savior, and to the Spirit of God who applies the benefits of Christ's redemption to us. With thanksgiving to Pastor Gerald in his absence, I give thanks for his love toward us that he expresses every week. And to all of you, Church is such a gift from Christ to us, and Calvary Memorial is an expression of that gift to us. And I am grateful to be part of what God is doing here, as I'm sure you are too. Thank you, worship team and tech team, for fostering worship in the spirit for us. And thank you again, Mariah, for reading scripture for us today. Before I start, please allow me to say thanks to five more or five of my former students who sacrificed their time to allow me to run my exegetical ideas in the passage by them and let them share theirs with me. Uh, thank you, Ben and Ada and Sophia and Hannah and Ranjur, all future scholars with no mean gifts. And know you are watching, if only asynchronously. Thank you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for those wide open arms to which we can run because of the blood of Christ, which is precious to us. Thank you that forgiveness was given freely to us at the cost of Christ becoming the propitiation for sins. Continue, as has been prayed, to shape us and mold us and conform us to the image of the Son. Bless that we would look more like Jesus, think more like Jesus, talk more like Jesus because of our experience here today. Now, God, give me grace to speak powerfully and clearly Speak to every heart in here. Do it so that Christ is exalted in Oak Park and in Berwyn and in River Grove. Do it so he's exalted in Elburn and Peoria and Springfield and all over Chicagoland and in places where people have never heard the name of Christ. May Christ be praised today and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. We have spent four weeks making the case for essential church, the case for being physically present and intimately involved in the life of this local assembly of believers. That case has argued that love for one another is at the center of worship, mission, and fellowship. In making our case, 
we have concluded that discipleship happens when worship, mission, and fellowship are running on all pistons. Last week, Pastor Gerald returned to the idea of love, but focused on the love Christ has for us as the bedrock for everything else we deem essential about church. He said, quote, The love of Jesus is the wheel that spins the other three aspects of discipleship. It is the animating energy that makes the whole wheel of discipleship move. Previously, when preaching in Luke 22 and John 21 on the falling and restoration of Peter, Pastor Gerald said, we need each other for worship, mission, and fellowship. As we have prepared and preached this series, we have hoped that many will return from watching church at a distance, a distance necessitated by the pandemic. But we had hoped that many would join us right here on Sundays in the sanctuary and back here again midweek and on the weekend for dinners, children's programming, men's and women's meetings, middle and high school ministry, adult classes, and the like. However, we do not yet seem to be experiencing the need for a waiting list to get in Sunday service. Nor do we have any need to enact our call-ahead seating protocols. So maybe we need to do a little more inquiry and ask, are there essentials to a church that need to be in place in order for the church to seem essential to us and all people? Or another way that we could ask this question would be, what would make persons not returning to this place physically, see participating in person bodily as essential to their spiritual growth, to honoring Christ, to their personal happiness and joy, and find it worthwhile of their sacrifice of time and presence. Akin to Pastor Gerald's series opening admonitions, the Apostle Paul would have told us that genuine love is that essential thing to the local assembly that makes participation in present essential when it is put into practice properly and consistently. In Romans 12, 9 through 16, we are considering a passage that stands in direct contrast to Paul's opening exposition of his argument in Romans. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul opens his case for the gospel of God in Jesus Christ by showing a catalog of sins embraced by the world that leave all persons without excuse before the wrath of God. God. Then at 12, 1 through 2, having explored the depths of the various aspects of the gospel in 11 chapters, Paul exhorts us to perform daily the radical transformed life provided for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Our bodies now belong to God in holiness as worship offerings. And our minds should think differently about the world so that we do the will of God. For Paul, a key demonstration of this Jesus-transformed life of salvation is genuine love. In 12, 9 through 16, Paul will give 19 different exhortations to tease out what genuine love looks like. And although Pastor Johnny's 10-point sermon provides precedent for me to consider all 19 points, I will consider just three sets so that the children's workers do not come get all of us. In these three sets, we will see some of the Jesus-transformed essentials provided through genuine love that make life in this local body essential. Number one, genuine love shows brotherly affection that honors others. Paul again says in Romans 12, 9 through 10, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. The exhortation to be genuine with love indicates that expressions of love can be insincere. The word genuine is a combination of words that mean without hypocrisy. The forms of love that are not just stage acting or play acting begin with completely abhorring evil and only choosing or clinging to what is good. Paul then quickly turns to directives immediately associated with the life in the local church when he says the words, one another. One another phrases indicate how we are to act toward each other within a local congregation. We are to have brotherly affection toward each other. And that should involve seeking to honor others within the church body. If you were looking at the Greek text, you would recognize two of the words in the passage. First, the word for brotherly affection is Philadelphia. The philia or phileo prefix is important for all Paul will say here. As far as it concerns loving people genuinely, with respect to brotherly affection, the apostle says, love one another, or rather, be devoted to one another. Second, that word love that appears first in verse 10 in the English is philia storgoi. You hear again the philia of brotherly love at the beginning of the word, and it is attached to another word for love that does not appear in the New Testament alone, storge. Storge has the idea of familial concern. So Paul says, with respect to brotherly love, genuine love shows familial concern for one another within the body. Each one of us is to have devoted, 
affectionate concern for all others in the congregation, for one another, like the care we have for our biological brothers, sisters, parents, and children we love. We are to add to this, outdoing one another in showing honor, which some English translations render as prefer one another. The instruction calls for each one of us to say of everyone else in this body of believers, I will take your idea over my idea. I think your presence here makes this a greater place. Let me work harder to make your area of ministry or life go better without criticism. I am going to afford to you far greater respect than I ever expect for you to afford to me. The way of the unbelieving world is to dishonor others in order to honor oneself. Just look at social media arguments and political attack ads. Political attack ads are not merit-based primarily. They are dishonor-based, shaming people's previous records and positions. Campaigns and counter-campaigns use such ads because we are accepting of them. If we were appalled by them, they would go out of use. Many of us carry dishonoring the other within us especially if we came from homes that tore down members of the family. Even though I came from an extremely encouraging home by the grace of God, I have occasions in which I have to be aware of thinking I am better than some of you or holding you to my standards of social acceptance. We know what honoring or exalting looks like. If a king or queen walked into our standing presence, we would bow. If our favorite arts, entertainment, sports, writing, or professional occupational hero sat in the pew next to us or joined us at the table for lunch, we would be speechless, awed, and hold back any and all criticism in order to take in the fullness of the moment with that one we honor. Paul says, genuine love for one another should be like that. We should participate in a local group of believers known as the church, and when we're there, everyone should be made to feel like kings and queens because each one of us is working to make one another feel this way without any reference to what we have done in the past. Genuine love. Agape, Paul writes, that flows from being transformed by Christ's death and resurrection by faith, takes the forms of philia, brotherly affection, Philadelphia, acted through consistent familial care, philostorge, and it makes people feel like royalty. 
who wouldn't want to be here when this place is open or surround themselves with people they know are going to treat them like this. This would be an essential sort of place if people thought that everyone here would treat them like the most loving sister, brother, parent, or child. And that with the honor given to celebrities, awarded scientists and artisans, and members of royal families. With this kind of love, we would have to say that we can't take call-ahead reservations. Two, genuine love opens our very selves to others. Again, I love what that great Oak Park theologian, G.E. Heastan, said to us last week, that there are two aspects to the love that Jesus has for each of us, his accepting love and his perfecting love, and that these two must be properly ordered in our vision of discipleship. He said, quote, the Christian life begins with the accepting love of Jesus and then continues with the perfecting love of Jesus, unquote. Like, he went on to explain, a parent moves toward perfecting a child only once the child shows agency. Initially, the parent shows accepting love, and that should continue forever, just as Jesus' accepting love of us continues forever. Only once the child shows agency do the parents move toward perfecting the child. Our shepherd went on to say, quote, if we only have an experience of his, God's, perfecting love, but do not have a robust experience of his accepting love, we will experience robust failure. If we impose perfecting love on our kids to a degree of experience that outstrips their accepting love, the children will experience Rebellion. It is common to put accepting and perfecting love in the wrong order. We want people to be perfect before we accept them, before we fully embrace their authentic selves the way we want people to embrace our authentic selves with all of our warts and scars, failures, weaknesses, fears, and all. But Jesus accepts before he perfects. And he calls us to love as he loves, as Mariah read out of John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Jesus says similar in John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The 10 or 11 additional love one another passages in the New Testament flow from this command, as do all of the other one another directives throughout the letters of the New Testament. It would be great if we read the one another passages as accept one another first, 
and concern yourself with perfecting others later. And even when you do start to perfect, don't reject, but continue to accept. Let me say that again. Accept one another first and concern yourself with perfecting others later. And even when you do start to perfect, don't reject, but continue to accept. Just comfort one another. Perfect later. Just encourage one another. Perfect later. Just serve one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another, forgive one another. Perfecting is riding in the slow lane. It will catch up to us sometime later. It's important to get accepting right. For only then can we rightly love, as verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The four most private things we have are our bodies, our shameful thoughts, our money, and our homes. To open our bodies to anyone but a spouse is sin. We give our bodies to Jesus. So, so please don't open your bodies to us. Thank you. Please don't, don't do that. To open our shameful thoughts, number one is too scary. Number two happens in confession. And number three can lead to unnecessary guilt within if we relive those experiences the wrong way. As far as opening our wallets is concerned, there is so much that we get right here at Calvary Memorial. Even during the pandemic, our benevolence giving remained strong so that we could share with those who had material and financial needs, probably even extended needs during the pandemic. Corporately, we do this well. To open our homes for hospitality makes us vulnerable, makes us vulnerable to judgment of our status, our material wealth, home decorating and upkeep abilities, culinary skills, curb appeal, and parenting skills. And who wants to be judged for any of those? But boasting is the way of the world. Jesus owns 100% of our homes, and he allows us to put our names on the deeds and on the leases. When we gave our minds and our bodies to Jesus in response to the gospel, we also gave him our homes. And we gave away criticism of others' homes and their parenting skills and their culinary skills and the broken concrete in their driveways and the need for exterior and or interior paint jobs. We go to others' homes for the people, for one another. We don't go to people's homes for their paint jobs. The term for hospitality also is one you would recognize. Philozenion, like philia, again, plus xena or xenophilia, love of the stranger. It simply indicates brotherly love the stranger or welcome the stranger, which I also think is the polar opposite of xenophobia. 
as Sarah Kiyunga White recognized in last week's Christianity Today article on hospitality for introverts, welcoming the stranger does not require a domicile or the opening of one's home. It simply requires us to be accepting of people who we do not know at all, know well, or know deeply. Xenophobia is what we are facing in our country as refugees come to our shores and as hate rhetoric against Asians, Jews, Latinos, and African Americans is on the rise. We need to be people who welcome strangers. The verb actually says, pursue strangers in Paul's terms. Welcoming does not require a political position. If the borders remain closed, we welcome people who are here, who are strangers in many forms. If the borders remain open, we welcome the strangers in our midst. Obeying the exhortation to welcome people unknown, little known, or not deeply known to us would cut through many of the ills we see in society today. Again, if I thought for one second that I would walk into a body of believers, be completely welcomed into the family as if I was one of the initiated knowing I would not receive judgment for my lack of moral or religious perfection, and if that I had a need, asking me to justify it would not be in the first series of thoughts of those helping me, this would be a place crucial to my happiness and to my well-being. You might as well carve an imprint of me in the pew because I'm going to be here every week. Number three, genuine love thinks lowly in the face of others. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. All three of these English sentences have behind them a root for a term related to thinking or the mind. Paul really is saying thinking the same thing toward one another, not thinking highly, but associating the lowly, not being one thinking wisely about oneself, but the English translations try to smooth that out and give us the sense of what Paul is saying. All three sentences require a lowering of oneself and one's thinking about oneself before others. Genuine love does not require us to think exactly the same thing on issues, but we do need to think the same about exhibiting genuine love toward one another. Genuine love associates with those of lowly means and positions in society. It does not only associate with those of one's financial status or class, and it does not simply gather in a clique those one deems of similar status and lifestyle. Rather than thinking of ourselves as higher and greater than others, even though this might be true materially and financially, there should be people of lesser means among all of our friendships. Genuine love can receive wisdom 
correction and advice rather than always being right, always having the right answers, or always being justified in one's behavior and choices. Church should not be a place in which anyone would ever perceive us to be a bunch of know-it-all snobs. We can find that in a zillion places without giving our money and without getting up early on Sunday morning. But relationships of genuine love happen in an arena of everyone lowering thoughts about themselves and about who is worthy of our friendship, our time, and our presence. And it happens in an arena of giving away our need to be right on everything. In the body, we become a bunch of transformed nothings who see dignity in everyone else. I think it was three weeks ago that Pastor Johnny said, we can't do in the world what we don't do in here. So let's figure out some ways to fuel up genuine love in here even more. First, for you who are joining us today but have been wounded by church, think church is a scam or a skeptical of organized religion. May I say to you that I get your hesitation to trust people who say they are Christian. I have been deeply wounded in the past by members of a church and by a pastor. But those incidents were localized. Every place is not full of hypocrites and abusers. You landed at one or even two of those places. I landed at one. But there are thousands of good churches full of faithful, safe, and friendly people. At Calvary Memorial, we are trying our best to be such a loving people. However, even if you are not yet ready to be part of a church again. Please don't let the frailties of the people of God keep you away from Jesus. Jesus is Lord of heaven and of earth. He is coming to judge the living and the dead, including everyone in this congregation, all the people from other places who have harmed us, and he is coming to judge you and coming to judge me. The only way to have life and joy on the other side of that judgment is to decide now to place your trust in Jesus. Jesus traded his life for ours to take the judgment that our sins deserved. And he rose from the dead to offer eternal life to a church that he will make beautiful and whole. Hesitant on coming here? Okay. But please do not hesitate today to cry out to Jesus for everlasting life. Second, in terms of brotherly affection that honors others, some of us must work of letting go of the need to control people and outcomes, while others of us must work on not rejecting the vulnerability that being close to others brings. Of course, I recognize as much as anyone the reality of trauma and its lingering effects. 
So if your trauma causes you to recoil from the thought of letting others into your life or entering into the lives of others, you have much to pray about and maybe for a good period of time. I would also suggest that when you think someone in here is safe enough to spend time with, or when someone offers to get to know you, come ask the staff, the elders, or someone here you already trust if that person really is safe. Everyone here is not a threat or triggering, but there are some scary baptized people For you controlling people who swear you are not controlling. Have an honest conversation with your spouse and or siblings and or children. Ask them to talk to you about your inflexibility and stubbornness and to pray for you to let go of controlling things. Believe me, they have been waiting for you to ask. Don't dismiss their responses or justify your actions. Just listen. Let them show you how not to have things your way. Then you can show true affection for others rather than use affection to get what you want and to manipulate others. Third, as far as it concerns opening our very selves to others, Start with being intentional about identifying and introducing yourself to faces new to you and including them in your meaningful life events, meaningful church events. Something like, hi, my name is whatever your name is. If your small group, mom's group, men's group, sporting group, reading group, singles group, or eating group, is significant and enjoyable to you, invite a newer-to-you face to join you in the joy of what you enjoy, and don't assume that someone near you already enjoys it or is already involved. Invite them into the blessings of what blesses you. If it blesses you, it will be a blessing to someone else without taking away any of your blessings. Yes, you're right, I know what you're thinking. That's risky. And you don't even know if the other person will like your favorite coffee shop, getting soaked in a kayak next to you, or sitting in a living room as her toddler plays in the backyard with your rambunctious angel of a toddler. But you will not know until you make a genuine offer and keep following through with actions of kindness and care. And the person remains a stranger until you show her, him, or them consistently the brotherly affection you show to those closest to you and most like you. We have a unique opportunity to get pursuing strangers right before the Supreme Court possibly overturns Roe v. Wade. While we will rightly applaud the rescuing of the lives of the unborn, 
We need to be prepared to offer brotherly, affectionate, stranger-welcoming, lowering of ourselves, genuine love to many families who will be burdened with the various costs of unwanted pregnancies. Thank you. Every post-Roe statistic points to those brown, black, indigenous, and poor people with unwanted pregnancies, people who would be strangers to many of us, being those who will be the furthest from necessary health care helps needed for mom, child, and families the rest of their lives. If we can be creative and sincere in our welcoming, in giving our very selves to make others part of our lives, contributing to their needs, and do so before the court makes any judgment, our actions will not be perceived as political maneuvering, but could be accepted as the real care and concern that they intend to be. Welcoming strangers is part of what can help we who are pro-life be more pro-living. It allows us to trade in a political position for a moral disposition. Fourth, with respect to lowering ourselves, examine your closest friendships and the people you prefer to be around. Ask, one, why them, and two, if anyone in your circle of close friends, or if everyone in your circle of close friends is of the same educational, familial, financial, class, or ethnic status. And on ethnic, we must also think of philosophical ethnicity, lest we let ourselves off the hook too quickly. Is anyone who qualifies for lowly in your circle as something other than a charity case or passing acquaintance? Can we just be friends with those who are lowly? Because that would be more like the genuine love of Jesus. See, Jesus shows divine brotherly affection as he comes into this world to make us children of God. While he was being rejected, love adopted us into the family of God forever. Jesus provides honor rather than seeking to honor himself. For it is we who were dead in trespasses and sin, and he made us alive in himself and seated us in the heavenly places with him. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In love, the just one died for the unjust to bring us, to bring us, to bring all of us to God. Jesus had no place to lay his head, yet he invites we who are strangers to God to his heavenly home. At the cross, love welcomes us from every land, language, people, and nation, Ukrainian and Russian, Somalian and Afghani, East Asian and South American, poor and broken, leper and orphan, violent blasphemer and murderer. No one remains a stranger who comes to Jesus. 
Greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends, not for charity cases, but for friends. Jesus' love is what makes the church a place and people without which no one should try to live this life. The essential that makes essential church essential is encountering lives that love others like Jesus has loved us. Father, we bless you for your grace. Sending Jesus in love for us. We are the alien in your sight. We are the stranger. We are the widowed. We are the orphaned. We are the poor. We are the needy before you, broken, spiritually depraved, in need of all the love heaven can give. Thank you that that love came in sending the Son when we were your enemies. Please give us greater brotherly affection for one another and everyone here, everyone who comes. Give us grace to open our very selves, if not our homes, in a way that welcomes people unknown, unlike not known deeply toward us. Father, may you be the one who works in us in such a way. Ever walks through the door, they will feel like we are making them to be kings and queens. Make this place even more essential, to seem essential to all of us all who wish to come for the glory of Christ. His name we pray.